In my reading file, I clipped a story some years ago about an Idaho couple that met uh, and courted at their local Walmart in Boise, Idaho. And they courted there, and finally, because of that, they decided that they would get married and determined that since they spent so much time at Walmart, they'd get married at Walmart. And so they had the service at Walmart, and they asked the the groom, uh, Bill Hughes, he's 55, and, and his wife, Pat, was 55, why they chose Walmart uh, to, uh, to get married at. And he said, well, we spend, listen to this, about six hours a day at the Boise Walmart. And so it never dawned on us to have it any place else. If we're not here, the people that work in the store worry about us. Now, I don't know about you, you might meet your your spouse at Walmart. In fact, it might be the cheapest place in the world to meet one. But I can tell you, you can't keep your spouse in the house if you try to build a marriage cheaply. A great marriage involves a deep and lifelong kind of investment. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. This is one of two messages on marriage that I'll be sharing with you in this series. And I want to talk with you about a marriage made in heaven. If you're physically able to do so, would you stand with me this morning as we read our text? Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, uh, really verse 21, if you will, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and him is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, would you take now these, your words, bless them to our hearts and to our homes. And Father, cause us to hear them. But more than just hear them, cause us to be doers of the word. Father, our culture uh, doesn't understand these things. It has misunderstood and misinterpreted these. So Father, I pray that you'll help us be living examples of what a marriage made in heaven looks like. Teach us, speak to us today again through your word. We are listening. You tell him right now, you're listening. And Father, we are listening. Speak now through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, this passage that we just read is one of the most powerful in all the scripture, and it particularly defines very clearly God's design for marriage. Now, unfortunately, today, this passage is not particularly well received by much of our culture 
given all the modern definitions of marriage and relationships. In fact, there are even people who say that they believe the Bible and that they believe the Bible is God's Word and yet do not believe this. And by the way, just as a kind of a footnote there, uh, did you note uh, here uh, that uh, in the passage that marriage is clearly articulated as between a man and a woman? And by the way, in the Greek, those are masculine and feminine uh, uh, descriptions. And by the way, G, uh, Paul quotes uh, the Old Testament as did Jesus, and in the Old Testament they are masculine and feminine in, in terms of the language. Now, by the way, you may be watching this, you may be sitting in this audience and say, well, you know, I don't particularly, I don't particularly like that. Well, I, I just say, don't get mad at me, you take that up with God. Now, I, I do want to say this, this isn't a Baptist doctrine. This is a Bible doctrine. And I'm afraid it, it, this particular uh, a truth from God's Word is becoming a minority belief today, and frankly, even in many churches and, in, and from many pulpits. But just remember this, when Noah went into the ark, uh, he went in as the minority. But when he came out, he came out the majority. And the point is that... Uh, I'm not really concerned about whether everybody likes the passage. I'm more concerned about being true to the Bible. And that's important so that you and I can grasp God's design for marriage and for relationships. And now let me say what I'm going to talk to you about, really, about marriage. Did you notice that Paul referenced it as a, a, uh, an illustration of Christ in the church? Now let me tell you something. These principles over these next two messages that I'm going to share about marriage, they work in relationships, period. All right? Uh, if you're engaged uh, or you're dating someone, these principles all work. They, everything I'm going to talk about, if you've been married for 150 years, they work. All right? So, so don't think that, uh, uh, well, that would be good if, if I were uh, young or young married. These are important for all of us. Uh, to understand. And by the way, these work in your relationship with Christ too. And so, uh, so I want you to listen very carefully to some of the things I want to share um, because let's face it, marriage in America is in trouble. It's a mess. And that's always what happens when man tries to redefine what God has already clearly explained. And that's what's going on today and that's why there's so much confusion about it and there's so much contention about it and uh, so I want, to, I want to show you some things that I believe will be very helpful to you in this whole idea of relationships, marriage, and um, whatever the status there. You say, well, my marriage is good. Great. You still need to practice everything I'm going to talk about. You say, my marriage is in trouble. You say, my relationships are in trouble. Then this will be helpful to you, extremely helpful to know how do you right the ship. But what I want to do in the message this morning is I want to share with you some malfunctions in marriage. In fact, if we're, going to, if we're going to keep relationships working, we have to understand what breaks them down, right? And this morning, that's what I want to talk to you about, some what I call major malfunctions um, in uh, marriage and in relationships, and four of them in particular that I want to show you. Here's the first one, and that is uh, the malfunction of conflicted values. 
the values are articulated pretty clearly in the passage that we read. And we'll come back to this passage in the second message I do on this subject matter. But, but one of the major malfunctions in a marriage and relationships today are conflicted values. Amos, in Amos 3, and cha- uh, uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, writes these words, Can two walk together unless they are g- agreed? And it's one of those rhetorical kind of questions, you know, the kind of question that means to ask the question is to answer the question. Can two walk together unless they're agreed? And, uh, and implied in the answer is what? No, absolutely not. And differing values are destructive to the harmony of a couple's relationship. In fact, it's the reason that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians not, not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I met my wife in Old Testament. I really did. It was a course on the Old Testament. That's where I met Allison when I was in school in college. And I, I will never forget when she walked into the classroom, it was close to love at first sight. Uh, but as we got to know each other, it became very clear that, that not only were we attracted physically, but we shared the same values. And that, uh, and that only strengthened our relationship and our, our love for one another. And uh, I can tell you now, we've been married for 42 years, and, um, and I, my wife can complete my thoughts. And in fact, she will often, now I know some of you do this too, but she will often, she'll take my sermon out. I don't review my sermon with her before I preach it. Um, and, uh, uh, but she, when she gets the outline, she will often have the blanks filled in, and she, she knows how I think, and she, she'll come up. Uh, kind of and and kind of rub it in my face to say I had all these filled out before you preach one of them but she just kind of knows she she knows she can complete my thoughts and my sentences we like the same foods we cherish the same ideas we hold the same convictions and we live by the same values I didn't have to convince her of what is valuable and she didn't have to convince me of what is valuable because from the very beginning we both looked at God's word separately and arrived at the same conclusion our values were compatible. Now, I never said and, and have never stated that we have, we've not disagreed at times. We've disagreed many times uh, about things, um, but not on bi- the biblical values of life. And friend, those are the values that make a difference in marriage. Why is that? Well, because if you and your spouse differ on God's value, there will be a clash and maybe even a crash of values and marriage sooner or later. I've had couples say to me, well, we don't agree on spiritual things right now, but we're in love. And those things will work out after we get married. Really? Did you just fall off the back of a turnip truck and hit your head? I want to tell you something. Don't deceive yourself. A person who doesn't hold God's values for marriage and family now Barring a supernatural act of God, it's not going to get better after you're married. I, you know, I, one of my favorite historical characters, Winston Churchill, and he and Lady Astor, uh, Astor uh, they had this running feud with one another. And in a debate for Parliament, it was reported that Winston Churchill said, uh, that Lady Astor said to Churchill, uh, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. To which Mr. Churchill turned and replied, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. 
I, I've had people, people say to me, well, I, I didn't understand the conflict of values when I got married, and, and subsequently I married a, an unbeliever, and now we're at odds because of differing values. Shouldn't I go ahead and get out? And the answer is no. Um, you don't excuse one bad decision by adding another bad decision to it. There are things that you may need to do, but, but you have the responsibility to live a godly life in front of your spouse. And I will tell you, it's going to be harder because of the difference of beliefs and behavior. Now, don't stay in an abusive relationship, but if you say, well, that we don't share the same values, then you have a responsibility now to live the right values and faith before them. You see, a marriage can malfunction when a couple does not share the same values in a lot of areas. First of all, their faith, I think that's most important. You know, the role of God and the church in their life. Uh, it can be an area like parenting, uh, how to parent and, uh, and who does the parenting. I'll be bringing a message on parenting in this series. It can be about uh, uh, what does marital devotion mean, commitment. Marriage isn't just a contract. A contract has loopholes. It has escape clauses. God designed marriage to be a covenant of the soul, and there's a difference between a covenant and a commitment. I asked Allison one time about her commitment. I said, babe, are, are you going to still love me when I'm, when I'm old and unattractive? And she looked at me, and she said, why, of course I do. You can have a malfunction in your values over friends and companions that maybe promote different or destructive values, over cultural ideas, you know, the world's philosophy, over God's ways and God's word, even behavior and habits, alcohol, uh, drugs, media, hobbies, all of those kinds of things. You see, for a marriage to be healthy, couples must walk together. So, number one, Major malfunction for many couples are conflicted values. Conflicted values. A second major malfunction in relationships can be confused responsibilities. We read about some of that in this particular uh, uh, passage. And again, I'll come back to this more specifically in, in the second message that I'll do on marriage. But Paul clearly talks about roles and responsibilities in our passage. Y'all did get that, didn't you? roles and responsibilities. While there's plenty of confusion today about roles and responsibility, listen, I want to tell you something. There's no confusion on God's part with the roles of marriage and family. God has made it perfectly clear. And when there is confusion on roles and responsibilities, the confusion is on our part, not on God's. Now, now that, my friends, is what has a lot of people so upset today. But we have to ask the question, not what does the culture say, not, not what do my friends say, not even what does my family say, not what do the people I work with, uh, what do they say? That's not the question. The question is, what does God say? Because God will have the final word. What does God say? What does the Bible say? Now listen, we're going to have to look at this thing and understand this thing from God's point of view, not the world's point of view. I mean, it's not going to be settled by cultural propaganda. It will be settled by God's Word. Gender neutrality, that's the wave, isn't it? The wave of 
of the modern family, and we're told that old traditional roles are restrictive and damaging to an individual's personal self-esteem and self-worth, and so people should just identify to whatever they want to identify with. Listen, I can tell you today, if I go stand in a car, a garage, and you say, what are you doing in there? And I say, well, I identify as an automobile. You're going to say, you're, uh, you're loony, and you would be right. If I eat bird seed and say, well, I identify as a bird, you're going to say, you're just, you're just not a Baptist because you're not eating right. But, <laughs> but listen, we're told today that everybody can identify what they are, who they are, what marriage is, what marriage isn't. We're, but whatever, and, and if you put any kinds of restrictions on that, you're going you're to damage a person's self-image and self-esteem and self-worth. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 19.4. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that He, that's God, who created them from the beginning made them Male and female. That is God's plan. And God's design. And it's pretty clear. And what he's talking about is not equality. We are equal but different. There are roles and responsibilities. And because we have different roles and different God-designed responsibilities, those are the things that make us different. Marriage, I said, is a covenant. It's not a contract. If you view marriage as a contract, you'll look for loopholes. But if you see it as a divine covenant, you'll take serious your responsibility within the confines of uh, marriage. I had, a, I had a man come to see me uh, some years ago, and uh, the woman he thought he was going to marry, they'd been living together, and she up and left. They had been living together for a few years, and he, was, he said, I'm a Christian, and he said, I don't endorse that. And I said, well, good for you, but I said, why were you doing it then? He said, well, because my parents had a bad marriage, and they, they divorced. And before I had the kind of marriage they had, I wanted to try out the relationship and see if it would work. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I don't want to hurt your feelings because he was already wounded, but I said, you were doomed from the beginning. And he said, really, why is that? I said, because you had no commitment, and she had no commitment. And so the, at, at some point in time, there's going to be stress in your relationship, and it's going to be the commitment that keeps it together, not the emotion, not the feeling. And I said, you had no commitment and no covenant, and so it became easy for her at a certain point in time to say, nah, I'm out of here. And that's exactly what happened. He said, well, I wanted to make sure I had a marriage that God could honor. <laughs> That's what he told me. I said, then you got to do it God's way. Man just keeps on making a mess of this whole thing, and it's pretty clear how God has defined it. Marriage is this covenant. You see, uh, and it's based on our roles and responsibilities. A man can be a great father, but he's going to have trouble being a great mother uh, and the same for a woman. She can be a great mother, but it's always going to be difficult for her to be a great father. Again, I know that goes against the grain of modern definitions now. But the fact is, <clears throat> the fact is the Scripture is very clear. God was very clear about roles and responsibilities. 
I noticed, I noticed that in our daughter years ago. Our daughter's 34 years old now, but I noticed years ago that she innately, a child innately understands this. Understands the difference between a father and a mother. You see, when she wanted something fixed or she had a physical need or she needed to feel protected, guess who she came to first? She came to her father But I observed that when she needed compassion or comfort or she was hurting or she needed mercy, she tended to go to her mother. Why is that? It is because a child understands what our culture has forgotten. That God made the male and female and there are innate differences in a man and a woman that makes a difference to a child. They are different. We are different. Male and female. But we are equal. Never let the culture tell you that the roles are unequal. That's not true. And that's part of the narrative that the culture has tried to lay on you is to say when you say one person uh, uh, is uh, female and one person is male, so one gets to dominate and the other has to, 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 to take their place below, you say, well, that's, what, uh, that's not right. That's unfair. That's not what the Bible is teaching. Y'all stay with me in both of these messages. That's not what the Bible's teaching. Listen, <clears throat> A man is, equal, uh, is incredibly superior to a woman in being a man. And a woman is incredibly superior to a man in being a woman. Different, but equal. That's what God's Word says. Don't let the culture lay something on you, some guilt on you that says, well, you, that you, you can't... Listen, equal but different. There's a lot of confusion, and that's why our homes are in a mess. That's why our marriages are in a mess. And years ago, if I'd have said what I just said in here, it got applause in here, but if I'd have said this years ago out there, it would have gotten applause out there too. They'd have given me high fives. But today, that statement is considered out of touch with society and humanity. But listen to me, friend. I decided a long time ago that I'd rather live my life out of touch with society as long as I am in step with God. And we better get that. We better understand that. You better figure that out. You need to be ready to be laughed at, ridiculed, criticized, and scorned in modern culture when you choose to do life and relationships God's way. Listen, there's no confusion on God's part with the roles of marriage and family. There's none. God has made it clear when there is confusion, again, that confusion is on our part, not His. Confusion about relationships and the roles of those relationships has created a lot of tension and a lot of marital malfunction. But here's a third malfunction I want to talk to you about this morning, and that is communication dysfunction. Now, as I said above, husbands and wives must walk together in marriage, but if they're going to do that, they must learn to talk together as well. Marriage counselors tend to agree that most marital malfunction is a result of communication issues. And I would fully agree with the marriage counseling I've done through the years that if you resolve two issues, trust and communication, and both of those, by the way, are linked, you will resolve about 80% of the issues uh, creating problems in relationships. A marriage that doesn't get uh, the idea of communication right is a marriage that is going to struggle. Kind of like 
what I read about one woman. She went to see a lawyer. She said, my husband wants a divorce from me. The lawyer says, well, why is that? The lawyer says, does he have a grudge? She says, oh, no, 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 he, he doesn't have a grudge. He has a carport. The, the lawyer said, no, I, 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 I don't mean that. I, I mean, does he have any grounds? She said, oh, yes, yeah, he, he's got some family property, about five acres. The lawyer said, so what, what's the problem? She replied, oh, he says we just can't communicate. Listen, it is safe to say that healthy relationships exist when there's excellent communication. And that's true on any level. By the way, it's true between parent and children. It's true between husband and wife. It's true for dating couples. And listen to this. It's true for a believer and his Lord. You see, without good communication, a relationship will deteriorate. Couples will sometimes say things like this, and I've heard them say it to me over the years. Well, we don't talk much about anything deep, but when we get married, all of that will change. <clears throat> listen, listen, if you're not communicating before you get married, it doesn't generally get better. It gets worse. Yeah, have you ever heard of the second law of thermodynamics? It says systems run down. They don't, they don't run up. They run down. I think that applies sometimes in relationships, in particular in communication. If you're not communicating well before you're married, you're probably not going to suddenly become brilliant communicators afterwards. Psychologists say that we only process about 20% of what we hear. 20% of what we hear. As a preacher, I think it's less than that. But if that's true, think about its effect on our communication with each other and marriage in particular, if we only process about 20% of what we hear, think about how that affects our relationships. Now, can it get better? Well, yes, it can get better, and there are several things that you have to understand. You have to understand how to be clear when you communicate. I heard a sentence recently that went like this, I know you believe you understand what you think I said. But I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. <laughs> have you ever communicated like that? Or have you ever had somebody communicate with you like, like that? It's impossible to decipher, isn't it? So we have to learn to communicate better. How can we do that? Well, I think the Bible teaches us how to do that. And one of the things that the Bible talks about is tuning into each other. Tune in. You want to fix it? Tune into each other. Where does the Bible talk about that? Listen, I'm glad you asked. James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You know, there's a lot of anger in marriages because they're not doing the first two things. They're not, they're not being quick to leer. Listen, they're already making their response before they ever hear what's being said. Are they being quick to, to listen? Are they being slow to speak and slow to anger? A lot of problems in relational communication are we're just not listening. We assume we know what's being said. Listening is just as important as talking. Much communication uh, uh, problems are the result of hearing things that aren't being said. Did you get that? You hear things that aren't being said. 
because you start making assumptions because you're not really listening. And so you assume that you think you know what was said. Proverbs 18, 13 says this, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his, to his folly and shame. And we do, you've done that before, I've done that before, we've responded before we really heard. And then we get defensive. And so the first thing you have to do if you want to repair communications, you must tune in to each other. You've got to really listen uh, to one another. The second thing is you must temper your tongue. James 3, 6 says this, And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. You want to, you want to fix communication? You've got to learn to temper your tongue. I mentioned earlier Churchill and Lady Astor. On another occasion, they were talking and, or debating. They never really talked. And uh, Churchill happened to be drunk on the occasion. And Lady Astor said to him, Churchill, are, are you drunk? And he said, yes, madam, I'm drunk. He said, but you're ugly. <laughs> and he said, tomorrow I'll be sober. Don't say everything you think. <laughs> Temper your tongue. You see, friend, your tongue can be an instrument of blessing or curse. It can be an instrument of blessing or destruction in your relationship. James said that your tongue is full of deadly poison. Did you get that? It's full of deadly poison. He says that no one can tame the tongue, but you can Temper the tongue. How do you do that? Let me give you several ways to do that or how to use your tongue in, in, in your marriage or your relationships. Number one, don't use it to shame or condemn other people. It's never wise to begin a conversation with you always or you should be ashamed. Start with this is how I feel. But don't use your tongue. If you want to temper it, don't use your tongue to shame or condemn the other person. You got that? Number next, don't use your tongue to put the other person down. Using your tongue to belittle or try and humiliate the other person doesn't tend to produce a warm response or even contrition on the part of the other person. All you'll do is produce defensiveness. One man said to his wife, I can't understand how God could have made you so beautiful and so dumb at the same time. And she didn't miss a beat. She replied back to him, it's simple. He made me beautiful so you'd be attracted to me. And he made me dumb so I'd be attracted to you. <laughs> Number three. Don't use your tongue to correct everything that's said. You don't have to correct every detail. It doesn't have to be perfected by you. Don't contradict your spouse in front of others. Don't use it to correct everything that's said. Number four, don't use your tongue to threaten. Never threaten. 
You are not a dictator. And by the way, Paul is not giving that kind of authority to the man in the marriage, so don't misread that like the culture wants you to believe. We'll talk about that in the next message. Don't use your tongue to think. You're, you're not a dictator over the marriage, men or women. Do not use your words as an ultimatum on your spouse. By the way, because sometimes you may use it and they may say, okay, so be it. Number five, don't use your tongue in a passive kind of martyrdom. You know what passive martyrdom is? It's called pouting and pouting with silence. Silence is communication. You do realize silence is a communication, and when that's employed, it is usually meant to communicate. There's a time for silence, an appropriate kind of silence, but listen, not when it's being used as a weapon or as a hostile response. Avoiding something does not result in healthy communication. And then you want to temper the tongue, here's, here's... a final thing you can do. Don't use your tongue aggressively. Far too many damaging words are said from emotion rather than from meaningful thought. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edification, that it may minister grace unto the hearer. You think about this before you pop off. Lord, is this going to... Uh, help encourage build up is this going to edify also we are told to speak the truth in love so many marriages today could be healthy and healed if the communication malfunction is addressed I've spent more time there than any of the others and I've done that on purpose because I believe that the communication breakdown in a marriage is the essential key to everything breaking down all of these are malfunctions and I've got one more I want to give you but if you get the communication thing you'll you'll be uh, on the road to recovery and health in your relationships there's a final thing though I give you a final kind of malfunction that occurs in marriages Uh, and you understand these are malfunctions that that uh, undermine healthy marriage Here it is, corrupt expectations. Corrupt expectations. Most uh, people enter marriage expecting a personal payoff. And by that, I I mean he or she uh, believes that this person I'm marrying is going to fulfill my life. They are here to make me happy or to take care of me. That's what they're going to do. But self-centered expectations are one of the greatest malfunctions of marriage. And this is how they manifest. They manifest with, well, you expect the other person to think like you do. Well, we all have a pretty high regard for our own thought processes. And so we think, well, in marriage, you know, for us to, we've got to think alike. You do not have to think alike about everything to be on the same page with your values. Hello? Hello? In fact, I want to tell you something. We're going to talk about this today. In the, in my, Alice and I are doing a marriage workshop today, and we're going to talk about this. When you try to get somebody to be like you, if you think you're having problems now, you get them to be like you. Do you know one of the reasons you married them is because they're not like you? 
Go back to what attracted you to that person, and you realize they are not at all. Well, you, you know, I've watched this through the years, and with a few, a handful of exceptions, but I've watched this through the years. Almost everybody marries someone that, that has strengths where, where they're weak. And if you'll look at your spouse, if you'll just think the thing that probably attracted you, they have some strengths that attract you because innately those things aren't in you. And the other is, is true as well. Yeah, I can look at uh, Alice and I, our relationship, and she is so strong in areas that I am so weak in. And I'm strong in areas that she's weak in. And you know what happens when you, God brings that together? It is a marriage made in heaven. Because God is so good to bring those people into our life that have strengths to compensate for our weaknesses. But a malfunction begins to happen, and I've seen lots of couples come together and try to make the other person think like they think. Or, or you expect the other person to do things the way you do things. Again, it's a, it's a prescription for malfunction. Well, this is the way I always did it. I've counseled couples that said, well, when I was growing up, this is how we did it in our house. Well, when I was growing up, we didn't do it like that in our house. And see, this is where it goes back to listening, learning to listen to one another. It doesn't mean the way you did it because it was different is wrong or because the way they do it, it is right. But listen, it is understanding, hey, if we get this right, this is going to, be, this is going to make it better than ever. And then self-centered expectations manifest when you expect the other person to feel your deepest desires. You know, just the thought that this person will complete me. I wonder if there's only one person that will complete you. And that's Jesus Christ. And, and the other person in your life, we, we thank God for them. But they are not, not going to fulfill the deepest desires of our life. And... Uh, when you go into marriage with the assumption that this person will fill all my deepest desires, you're going to be disillusioned pretty soon. It doesn't, you know, they say the honeymoon's over. But if you go into the, both parties go into their relationship, understand that only Christ can complete us. And by the way, I used to tell couples this, well, make Jesus the Lord of your home. But I failed early on in my ministry to tell them the, mo the way to do that is you make Jesus Lord of your life. And if two people are pursuing Christ individually, guess what? Christ will become Lord of their, not only their personal life, but their family life, their home life. And I discovered that early on. Help them understand how to pursue God individually because only Christ can make you the person your spouse needs. But we have these faulty expectations, and they will destroy marriage. They will corrupt us and deform our relationship. Why? It is because God brings two people that are different together in order that together they become more effective for Him. One of the great goals in your marriage, God, is pleasure. God brought you together for pleasure, but He also brought you together for purpose. That the two of you together in relationship can be more effective for God than you could ever be apart from, uh, from each other. If you understand that. You see, marriage is not about he and she. Marriage is about him and them. 
It's the whole idea behind Philippians 2.3 where Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And by the way, you know who Paul uses as the model for that right there, that, those verses? He uses Jesus Christ. All successful relationships require, require something. All of them. All successful uh, relationships require something. You ready for it? Self-denial and sacrifice. Self-denial and sacrifice. Again, I'm going to come back in the second message. I'm going to elaborate more on some of the ideas expressed in Paul's passage here. But we sometimes say, well, Paul tells women to be submissive. I'll deal with that in the next one. Okay, come back for round two. But he also tells the man to be sacrificial. By the way, this is an incredibly powerful combination. And you know what, men, look, just quickly. Well, if she would submit, I'd be sacrificial. Doesn't work that way. I've had women say, well, if he would be more sacrificial, I would be submitted. Doesn't work that way. We are responsible. We were responsible for our roles before God. Now, I'm going to address all of that if it's bad and all of that kind of stuff. But listen, the burden, men, is on you. I fully believe the burden is on man. <clears throat> Why? Because he says you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he says it three times. That's because men are a little denser. And so Paul, being a man, understood that and has said, guys, love your wife. Guys, love your wife. Guys, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially. He gave his life for the church. The burden, men, listen, is on, is on us. The burden is on us. And by the way, I, I will tell you this. If you love like Christ unconditionally, you won't ever have a problem with a wife who says, I, I will follow my husband. Well, again, I, I, I'll, I'll talk all about that in the next message. But let me close, let me close with these words from Peter Marshall. Do you all know who Peter Marshall was? Peter Marshall was the chaplain of the United States Senate for a couple of decades, a, a very godly pastor and, and uh, leader. And this is what he wrote about marriage. Let me close with this. He says, Dearly beloved, the marriage relation, when rightly understood and properly appreciated, is the most delightful as well as the most sacred and solemn of all human relations. It is the clasping of hands, the blending of lives, and the union of hearts that two may walk together up the hill of life to meet the dawn. Together, bearing life's burdens, discharging life's duties, sharing in life's joys and sorrows. Marriage is more than moonlight and roses. It is much more than the singing of love songs and the whispering of vows of undying affection. In our day, it is by many lightly regarded and by many as lightly discarded. But marriage will ever remain in the sight of God an eternal union, made possible only by the gift of love which God alone can bestow. That's so true, isn't it? And that's why marriages are not made on earth. Marriages are made in heaven. They're kept alive by God's grace. Do you know, I think I've told you this before, but when our daughter, 
was young, and at night I would sit on the bed with her, and I'd read her a Bible story, and we would talk a little bit, and then we would pray. And, um, and so I began, actually, Allison and I began praying for her husband when she was in the womb. I would lay my hands on the womb and say, Lord, somewhere out there, there is a little boy or one to come who you designed for her. And we pray for him now that he'll come to know you at the right age, just as we were praying for her, that, that, and that at the right time you'll intersect their paths. We prayed that before she was even born. And then afterwards, and fast forward a few years, and we're sitting on the bed, and she's a little girl, three, four, five. We're doing this at night. And so it comes time to pray, and we would get on our knees to pray, and then I would pray this, and Lord, for that boy, for that man who will come and carry his life, she's sitting right beside me. Would you prepare his heart? Would you begin preparing his heart for that day when he would accept you so that he would be the right man? <clears throat> I don't know. She's four years old, maybe. And one night, we get down to pray. And I'm praying, and I haven't got to that part yet where I would pray for the man. And she thought I wasn't going to. And she interrupted the prayer, and she said, Daddy, don't forget to pray for the man. <laughs> and we did, and I, you've heard me joke uh, about that, but he was the man. He was the man. We firmly believe that. And we, we talked about all of that. Listen, you say, does God have one kind of wife or one kind of man? He has a kind he has a kind of person that he wants you to connect with in marriage. Some of you say, I'm already connected. Well, all of these things work because these malfunctions continue if, if they're not given energy. They continue, they crop up, they can go away, they flare back up, right? Because the devil knows how to use these things to disrupt your relationship. But you know the most important relationship in the world, if you're going to have the right kind of earthly relationship, you've got to have the right kind of heavenly relationship. You see, it's hard to do marriage or relationships right or God's way if you don't know God. And so we can talk about this relationship, getting this right, but the most significant relationship in your life has to start with Christ. If you don't get that one right, you won't get this one right, because he's the author. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to invite you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, to call on him right now. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I know you died for my sins. Uh, thank you for loving me, and I receive you, just like you've told me, to call upon you right now. I call upon you to be my Savior. Father, hear those prayers. We know you do. You've promised to. For any, Father, that are listening by television or live stream or radio, 
that need you. Let today be that day where they call upon you. Get that relationship so that they will be the bride. The bride. You've told us that that's who we become. The bride of Christ. And I pray, Father, for those who prayed that prayer today, help them, Lord, to take it serious, but take any next steps that they need to take. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? As I am each week, I'm going to be here at the front, and I invite you from the balcony, ground floor, uh, to, to slip out in just a moment. Maybe you say, I've trusted Christ, or I just prayed that prayer, Pastor. I called on Christ. We'll take it from there. You come to one of us or staff members on the aisle, come to me, whatever, and we'll take it from there, okay? Maybe you this morning said, you know what, I need a church family. You do. I'll be preaching about that sometime in the month. The church family, the family of God. If you're a Christian, you need to belong to the family of God. I invite you to come say, Pastor, I want to join I want to join Ridgecrest. People do it every week, and we'd love to have you. If you don't have a church family, a church home, come today and say, I want Ridgecrest to be that church home. Come and use this altar. Kneel before God. You're praying about something or praying for someone, whatever it may be, come and kneel before the Lord. Whatever the decision you need to make today, in just a moment, when Aaron and the choir begin to lead us, you slip out, you come on. By the way, those of you who are watching on live stream, there is instructions on your screen about how you can make your decision today. You can make your decision. There's a tear-off panel. You can use that. Take it to the Welcome Center. Drop it in one of the baskets. We'll take it from there, whatever the case may be. But as the choir sings right now, you come on. You ready? Come on.